Welcome everybody to another episode of the Two Guys, One Topic interview series. As you all know, we give ourselves a week to research a topic, find out the information and then share the most useful parts of it with yourselves. From time to time, when we can, we'll interview people, topic experts, if you like, to get their thoughts on the topic that we've covered. Yeah, we got a doozy this week, don't we, Ollie? Absolutely. So this week, we are interviewing one of the world's forefront experts on astrodynamics, which, if you're not sure, is the movement of objects in space. So he currently works at the University of Texas. He has hosted TED Talks. He worked or was in the US Air Force. He's worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, it's fair to say this guy is definitely who we need to talk to when we talk about space debris. So coming up is our interview with Moriba Ja. Welcome, Moriba. Thank you for joining the Two Guys, One Topic podcast. Nice to be here. We are yeah, really excited to, to speak with you. As the listeners will know, this week when we were researching space junk, our research and reading could only take us so far. So it's brilliant to have some expert knowledge from Moriba to be able to answer some of the outstanding questions we had. All right, let's give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, we said when we recorded it, this is one hell of a rabbit hole, space junk and space debris. And um, we just ended up with more questions, I guess, didn't we? You know, something that we knew nothing about a week ago. Suddenly we know some stuff, but now we've got a load of other questions. So I guess my first question is, how, how do you define space junk or space debris? Like, like what, how, what, what is that to you, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, there's a, a population of uh, human-made or anthropogenic objects in space out of that population, there's a, a subset of things that are delivering a service or serving some sort of purpose that, that is useful and meaningful to at least one human. Uh, and, and, and everything else is kind of like dead, defunct uh, shard or a piece or a remnant or a, a fragment of something. So I would say any, anything that's not serving uh, kind of an actively useful uh, purpose, you know, providing a service or a capability uh, is is probably you know rubbish. Mm. Nope, that that makes sense. And we were reading that there is a, a genuine concern about the space debris and space junk that's out there. And even in the news this week, just seeing about the um, the rocket from China and that then coming down. I mean, what's what's your view on about how much of a worry you think this should be for us? Yeah. I tend to make analogies between the growth of this anthropogenic space object population and uh, COVID. Uh, and so we'd like to see the curve flatten on the growth of that population. Okay. And the biggest impediment to flattening that curve is a lack of compliance with uh, debris mitigation guidelines that have been put out there by uh, most space agencies have been put out there by the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. There's like 21 guidelines that two years ago that, that came out, uh, you know, 90 plus countries signed, signed to that. But the guidelines in and of themselves are not legally binding. And so uh, they're left, to, you know, as suggestions, as, you know, pretty please with sugar on top, do this. Mm -hmm. And so, so most people aren't, you know, uh, doing that. And so that's the biggest uh, 
you know, absence of, of, of curve flattening due to that. And then there are also, uh, just like with COVID, uh, there's super spreader events. I would say that there are super spreader events in near earth orbit. Most of these from derelict, uh, rocket bodies and that sort of stuff left on orbit, you know, many of them decades. And I think, I think the tally is about 2000 of these really heavy, massive objects that are just ticking time bombs. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they'll either explode, something will collide with them, and then they'll become many, you know, hundreds of thousands of pieces of debris. Or, uh, you know, some of some of those will actually re-enter based on whatever Mother Nature uh, sees fit uh, to do with them. And, you know, out of the ones that re-enter, like with the Chinese rocket, uh, re-entering naturally means that there's a higher likelihood of surviving re-entry and then that means that there's a non-zero chance of the thing landing on top of a populated area so so that that's not very comforting mm. no wow yep we read about um all of the pieces all that like you were saying there about the hundreds of thousands of pieces and the european space agency or, or their website like tells you how many bits there are in space and they they wrote that there's like 128 million pieces, like between a millimeter and a centimeter. Now, and we can actually see it, you know, behind you, the, you know, the image of all the pieces around Earth and stuff. Like, how do they know there's that many pieces? Is that just some yeah, clever maths? Because that, they're so that, small. Yeah. So this is where I say that's bollocks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they can't measure that. So 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 that's just people reaching in the barrel of of. Uh, uh, what do we call it? Neverland. Was that Michael Jackson's uh, fairy yeah, tale yeah. kind of place? Yeah. yeah. So that's what Neverland comes out of Neverland. Uh, you know, uh, these these predictions of how many objects are that small. So so that's not. Here's the thing, man. In order for you to really quantify a population, right? So we're interested in knowing the total number of objects. You know that could be hazardous, and so hazardous objects do go down to millimeter in size because you know bullets are small and can cause lots of damage so we know things that are small traveling at very high speeds have a lot of kinetic energy and so you know that's where the damage comes from now the thing is in terms of trackable things we're talking about things the size of like a cell phone all the way up to the space station Mm -hmm. so things that are things that are smaller than 10 centimeters are uh difficult if not impossible to track because tracking means two things means you're detecting the object and you can identify the object. So you you have to be able to detect it and say, yeah, uh, that's object one, two, three. Simply detecting stuff is not good enough because you don't, you have no idea what it is, where it's going to go. Did you measure the same thing five times once? You just don't know because you haven't placed an identity on it. And so one of the things that I I know that NASA and, and some other folks do is they take these big, uh, you know, radio uh, dishes like the Deep Space Network dish in, in the Mojave, like 70 meter diameter kind of dishes, point the thing to the sky and they'll see blips show up. And so uh, so they say, OK, well, I saw, some, you know, this many blips in one hour. So I'm going to extrapolate to what that means, uh, you know, across near Earth orbit. I got to yeah. tell you. Um, that is a hypothesis, but the thing is, it's it's probably not a great one. 
because uh, it assumes that everything's in a circular orbit and you know you only detected the thing once and that space is uniformly populated. So there's a lot of ifs in order okay. to get to that. And I can tell you that at, at those small numbers, when we start getting lower than the one centimeter type stuff, ESA and NASA have very different numbers. So, so, okay. so, so they're in huge disagreement with each other because we can't track this stuff. That, that is brilliant. Thank you so much for clearing that up. That was something that we were saying to each other because we read about 10 centimeters and higher being trackable. So yeah, how did they, how they come up with these numbers? But that's really good to know. Yeah, thank you. We, it then, as, as space junk you might expect, it led us in, down into the, the Kessler syndrome and what, what Kessler predicted. And so we just wanted to hear your view on that as well. Is that- Yeah, every time I hear Kessler, you know, it shaves five years off my life, man. I cringe. <laughs> uh, it's just not, not so good. Um, so, so yeah, basically this idea that, let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. In my career of doing science and engineering, one of the things that I've taken notice of, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in empiricism. I love being able to, to look at what mother nature actually does and collect like real data and that sort of stuff. There are a lot of people out there that are all theoretical and they don't care about reality. I tend to care about reality. So when I see, when I see a system that uh, has a lot of input and then the input ceases, all of these systems tend to seek a state of equilibrium. So the thing is, with COVID, people weren't traveling anymore. What did Mother Nature show us? Oh, you can actually go to Venice and like see all the way down the canals. You yeah. can see dolphins now. You can see animals coming out when they didn't. You know, it's like the silver lining in the COVID thing is that there was a, a, a human input to the system that ceased. And yeah. Mother Nature showed us what equilibrium might look like. Um my belief is that if you stopped launching satellites altogether, Mother Nature would find its equilibrium state, whatever that is. So this idea of this cascading runaway thing that forever you're going to have collisions ad nauseum, ad infinitum, that's just bullocks as well, right? That doesn't okay. make sense. And Mother Nature has never shown us that that's what the behavior is. It always seeks a state of equilibrium. So my guess is that Mother Nature would seek an equilibrium state. At some point, you wouldn't have these collisions anymore. You wouldn't have things fragmenting into smaller pieces. At some point, something so small that it doesn't break up anymore into a smaller piece, like all these things. Mm -hmm. What does that actually look like? I don't know. So I think the more useful thing to talk about instead of Kessler syndrome is orbital carrying capacity, because that's like a real thing. That's like, okay, um, you know, any given orbital highway has a, a saturation limit as to how much traffic it can, it can keep. Uh, before our decisions and actions can no longer prevent losses, disruptions, or degradation of services. So we know there's a carrying capacity to ecosystems, carrying capacity to highways. We can apply this sort of concept to space. And as a global community, we could say, let's define what that carrying capacity is and understand where the saturation limit is. And now we can manage that finite resource in a way that makes sense. But the whole Kessler syndrome thing is a very, you know, uh, chicken little sky is falling. It's just yeah. not so good. So it's just catastrophizing. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's like, and the thing is mother nature doesn't like behave that way. Yeah. So it's like, you know, all respect to Don Kessler. Maybe he didn't mean to say it that way. And sometimes you put something out there and people like 
kind of change its meaning and then it kind of takes off and has a life of, of its own. You know, I, I haven't talked to, to, to Don about it. Maybe, maybe he agrees with me. I don't know. Okay. I like that. <laughs> well, there we go. We did read that there are differing opinions on it. it was, it's interesting when we spoke about it, didn't we? Saying that, yes. you know, some people believe, believe this will happen and others are like, this is just pie in the sky. This is never going to happen. Um, you sort of mentioned there about um, like if, if we knew how much we could send up, if we could regulate it somehow. Um, yeah, we sort of read that space is a little bit wild west at the minute. In the, and you mentioned it earlier about the lack of regulation. Is that something that you think will ever be solved? Because like you said, it's all like um, suggested, please, can you bring your stuff back when you've been up to space? But but who's going to actually like enforce yeah. this to happen? Well, so, so the thing is, um, so we do have a lot of space laws out there uh, captured in the Outer Space Treaty and other treaties and conventions of the United Nations, like liability and damage, uh, you know, space object registration and a few others. The thing is that they're very broadly interpreted. So that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we don't even fully know how each you know, nation state is interpreting and applying these things. So one of the things that I tell people is, if you can't manage what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't measure, that's simple. So the thing is, it all starts with measurement. One thing that we should ask ourselves is, given the current space laws out there that people have signed up to, Who's compliant with these things? Who isn't? And the people that are compliant, how are they actually interpreting this stuff based on measuring how they're implementing this? That would be a first step. And nobody's really done that yet. So, so we don't even know. So we can't manage the stuff because we don't know it. And so we have to make those measurements. Um, I think that doing that would be very informative. And then we could say, hey, like one of the things that we did at UT is uh, uh, UT Austin is that um, we developed, you know, this whole astrograph thing that you see kind of on, on, in the background. We also incorporated semantic information from uh, the United Nations out Office of Outer Space Affairs with space object registration. And we came up with a rating system for the people who actually do register their objects with a lag time, where lag time was. So, so the actual convention says, once your object is launched, register your object as soon as is practicable. Those are the words, as soon as it's practicable. We saw that there are a lot of countries out there that take five years before they register the object. Wow, okay. So as soon as it's practicable has interesting uh, interpretations. It's not uniform. Everybody doesn't understand it and apply it in the same way. And my guess is that there's some cultural context to that as well. Some cultures will wait for a while and they'll register several hundred objects at a time. China tends to do that. They don't register one object at a time. So anytime you see a spike in registrations, that's probably China that does that. For whatever reason, that's what their culture does. But that's the way that they've interpreted this stuff and applied it. And so it's back to, we need to measure how people are interpreting these things and then uh, you know figure out what goes from there. But, but, but I think to, to your point with things like you know, compliance with mitigation. Um, the Outer Space Treaty and these other treaties put complete liability on damage and harmful interference on nation states. So the thing is, it's not companies. So, so, so Acme Incorporated right. can do a bunch of stuff up there. They can cause a lot of damage. And uh, wh whoever they cause damage to, that, that, that entity can't go to Acme Incorporated and say, oh, you owe me. No. 
Okay. They have to go to the nation state that is responsible for Acme Incorporated and then shake their fists at the heavens kind of stuff. Okay. So to me, what that means is this, right? It means that ultimately, if nation states are responsible for the liability, the nation states have all of the authority to force their own uh, citizenry to comply with these things. So the U.S. and other countries could easily take these mitigations and say, these aren't suggestions anymore. This is space law. Space law in the United States says, thou shalt blah, 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 blah. <laughs> if yeah. you want, right, if we're going to authorize you to operate in space and give you a license for that, then you're signing on to being liable to follow these things. And if you don't, we're going to come after you and we're going to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And should, and nation states should then make that enforcement transparent so that everybody says, hey, you know, people aren't just coming up with laws and, and, and then other people are breaking them and nothing's happening. You can see, oh, the Indian people are now prosecuting their own companies for not doing this. The U.S. is prosecuting, you know, Elon for not doing this, that or the other. Like that would be the thing that would start, I think, motivating uh you know, kind of this global compliance with stuff, but it's not going to come from from asking or begging companies to do it for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, and trying to get that global consensus is yeah, that's not going to yeah going to be super tricky, isn't it? Yeah, um, and trying to make the 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 wording um, more direct and is is what will be difficult getting them to sign up to. No, that that makes sense. We were we were reading about this two main ways effectively about trying to reduce space junk and it's either reducing what you then put up there already or then trying to go out there and retrieve what's up there already so i mean you know we we've seen we've seen like spacex you know in one hand they've done quite well over the last few weeks where they reused you know their capsule they reused um you know a couple of rockets as well which is brilliant but on the other hand, SpaceX are also then trying to put mega constellations up there where they've already got 12,000 permission for 12,000 satellites to go up and they want to extend it to 42,000 um, in time. So I just wonder, you know, you're you're thinking about you know, how, how that works in terms of that whole reducing what is up there. Is, is that a good, the best route for us to be going down? Well, I certainly like to see uh, how other environmental protection narratives can be applied to space. So certainly like here on the earth, uh, you know, there's a big movement in minimizing single use plastics. So mm-hmm. I think we should have a movement that minimizes single use satellites and single use yeah. rockets, right? Uh, so make things reusable, recyclable. So yeah, uh, SpaceX has done a great job with that. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, especially with the Chinese long March 5B rocket re-entry, the message to the global community should be every single uh, rocket that delivers a payload on orbit cannot just be left to mother nature to cleanse because until, yeah, which that shouldn't happen. We should actually equip these rockets with some propulsion system that forces them to come in at a steeper angle with respect to the atmosphere to maximize the chances that the thing's going to burn up and not survive re-entry. Okay. That would be the responsible thing to do. So there should be public pressure put on all nations, not just China, to, to move in that direction, for instance. The cleaning thing, uh, the cleaning of space doesn't make, there's no, there's no market for that, man. 
and it's not a monetizable really? thing. No, it's uh, or else it, it would be already. Um, it's not a monetizable thing until we have sustainability metrics in place. One of these sustainability metrics would be the orbital carrying capacity. And another sustainability metric would be what I call a space traffic footprint, which would be like a carbon footprint analog, uh, loosely understood as the burden that any given object in space, dead or alive, poses on safety and sustainability of other stuff. And so let's assume that we had the space traffic footprint. We can now, uh, some composite index that we can uh, quantify all objects that are alive in space. And we understand what the carrying capacity is of any one of these orbital highways or regimes. Then we can say, okay, um, in this orbit, the you know 90% of the capacity is being, being taken up by debris from the US, China, and Russia. And um, turns out Zimbabwe wants to use this orbit and can't because uh, the capacity is being saturated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these countries have, I don't know, 12 months to basically remove some of their objects to minimize the footprint and the and provide capacity back to this orbit so that somebody can make some good use of it. If the countries don't do that, then we have the cleaning crew, just like private citizens can't go to a, a, a car on the side of the road and just hop in and drive it off because yep. uh, it's private property. Right. Acme Incorporated can't go to Dasvidanya LLC and move out, move, move the debris out. So this is where we could have the equivalent tow truck service and say we have a third party that we pay when 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 people aren't responsible for removing their junk off the highway. Now we pay the tow truck. But there's a penalty to the owner of that thing for just leaving it abandoned up there or whatever. That that's that's something that closes People will, will make money. You can put a bounty on stuff, yep. just like, uh, you know, we can think about augmenting space laws with things like salvage laws on the oceans where people can get, get reimbursed for providing capacity back, that sort of stuff. It opens up a marketplace because there's a direct impact to the environmental and and and, and financial uh, uh, longevity of, of the use of space as a resource. But in the absence of having those sustainability metrics, who cares, right? It's like, I don't know, Astroscale just demonstrated something uh, yeah, nice. Uh, you know, ESA is going to do this clear space thing in 2025. Okay, nice. You're demonstrating the technology. Surrey Satellite Systems demonstrated the net and the harpoon, right? It's like the fishing, yeah. the fishery type stuff to remove stuff from space. Who's paying any of these people to m- remove a bunch of stuff? Nobody. It's not going to happen without, without, without uh, you know, the, the, the means to make sense out of it. And that has to come from sustainability metrics. Yep. No, that makes It's funny. My next question was going to be about Astroscale's Elsa D retrieval rocket. Just how good it is. And is, is it, does, you know, is it going to work? Um, you know, they, they bigged it up quite a lot saying that this is going to clear up space, but, but you're not 100% sure that's, that's the case then. Well, so here's the thing, right? There is, here's what I know with absolute certainty. There's no, uh, when it comes to debris uh, remediation, which is the cleaning of stuff, there is no Lord of the Ring technology out there. The one ring to rule them all, the one technology to clean it all. (laughs) That's also a fairy tale. You know, ask Frodo how that turned out. And so the thing is, um, you know, I think that when it comes to cleaning up debris, it takes a hybrid uh, system. It takes all sorts of technologies because 
some technologies are going to be useful for very specific classes of objects, but completely useless for other classes. We don't have a taxonomy or a classification scheme for the anthropogenic space object population. Right now, rocket bodies are treated the same as CubeSats. Makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the technology that you would use to remove a rocket. Yeah. So um, I think if we can come up with a trait-based taxonomy for this population and then say, okay, now that we know the different classes and species of stuff living in this near-Earth ecosystem, which technologies would be optimal for each class of object and then go off and develop those, right? That's something that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could see how that could be applied to it. And especially where you were saying about maybe yeah, making nation states accountable for what they have up there as well. And then, um, yeah, the, the orbiting paths. No, yeah, nice. No, that's um, that, that's brilliant. I, I One like more personal question that I was interested to know, you spend a lot of time looking out into space. Um, do you ever think you'll actually go up there yourself? I don't really have a desire to, to be honest. Um, I, uh, you know, if somebody were to say, look, man, you can spend the next week experiencing what it would be like to jump out of a window and never hit land. So, so, so you're falling for a week or you could go to Lake Como and basically chill out next to, I'm going to, I'm going to choose Lake Como six ways till Sunday, my brother. I don't, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to try to feel what it is to fall for a week. Other people think, oh, that's so awesome. Like, where can I sign up? Not me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine by Lake Como and I'll see the dot of light go across the sky at night when it's reflecting photons. And I'm just going to be chilling with my vino rosso and it's going to be all good next to Como. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. What, what are you working on at the minute? Is there anything like fancy that, that would be interesting? to? Absolutely. So, so one of the, I think, one of, yeah, yeah. So one of the coolest things that uh, we're working on, and I think that I had said this idea about the tracking, which means detecting and identifying, is, is we're coming up with a, a method that uh, I'm calling BISOR, which stands for Biometrically Inspired Space Object Recognition. And wow. we, we are developing uh, fingerprint equivalents for these objects so that we can remotely, with remote data, counting photons reflected off of these objects, we can um, put these things through an enrollment verification and recognition process, just like with fingerprinting, and see for how many objects can we apply this so we can get to unique one-to-one -one matching between what we detect and what we believe the thing wow. is so that we can start uh, doing a census. We wanna perform a census of the population and, and see where are the different zip codes and habitats where things live? Who are the individuals that live in these? Do we have drifters, nomads that go from one, one region to another? So okay. this lays the foundation for all that stuff. And in wow. fact, in the, in, in the chat, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna show you what we've done with real data so far um, and, 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 and starting to generate what a 3D, uh, you know, what a, th a 3D um, fingerprint looks like for this stuff. So oh, incredible. I'll, I'll, yeah, 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 yeah. And can and we you then can, share that with our listeners to then yeah, see? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can check this out. And this is for a spacecraft, a dead spacecraft called Topex, um, which, which was uh, used for ocean altimetry and these sorts of things for years. It's in low Earth orbit, but, you know, uh, the high, higher Earth orbit, 800 kilometers type stuff. And um, 
there's there's the link right there. And um, basically, what we did is we collected uh, reflected uh, photons, uh, reflected sunlight off the object, uh, at least part of it. Um, you'll you'll see when you go to the website. And we collected these, uh, measuring the photons reflected at 50,000 times a second. And based on uh, counting these things at 50,000 times a second, we were able to figure out which photon came from which part of the satellite. And so in this view, you'll see a, a 3D model yes. uh, provided by, by Fanny Oldfield of Topex in the middle. And then the scatter that you see is the intensity with which photons reflected off the object, which um, is a function of material properties and, and size of the different facets. So this is pretty cool stuff. That's an incredible picture. Yeah, amazing. Um, we say every week, don't we, some of this stuff is mind-boggling. That is, that is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, so That's it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Moribar. That has been super interesting and really <laughs> useful for us and for our listeners just to clear up some of the outstanding questions that we had from this week's pod. Hey, look, uh, thanks for having me. And anytime that I can have a, a down-to-earth conversation, literally and figuratively with folks about this stuff, uh, I think it's a good day. Amazing. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you so much. Wow. Liam, that's incredible, <laughs> right? Is that the most interesting person we've ever spoke to so far? Quite possibly. That's so good. That's so interesting. I could listen to that guy talk all day, um, interested as we did, because that is really, really cool. Yeah, what do you think? Oh, absolutely amazing. I loved how some of the things that we learned and read about, and we knew that there were conflicting views on some of them, but how he just came out and just said, absolutely not about the Kessler syndrome. I think, I think the word he used was um, to track the 128 million pieces of um, tiny space debris that have been mentioned. Yeah, the word he used was bollocks, and I thought that was that's quite funny. <laughs> really, really good, really good. We'd love to hear your thoughts, um, everyone else who've listened to that as well. If you have any comments um, or suggestions, get in contact with us on the social at Two Guys One Topic on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks, everybody. Speak to you next week. <laughs>